And let's take our Bibles and we'll turn together to Genesis in chapter 8. This summer we have been studying together the various covenants uh, found throughout the pages of Scripture and considering then how those covenants are fulfilled in the person and ministry of Jesus. So we come to the covenant made with Noah, the Noahic covenant, as um, that's recorded for us beginning at the end of chapter 8 and through um, the first half of chapter 9. So Genesis chapter 8, and we start in verse 20. This is the word of God. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, and to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said, To Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. It is uh, 
bulk pickup season in our uh, neighborhood. And so for the past several days, as we uh, walk around the block or go on bike rides, we're, we're seeing all of the um, things that our neighbors consider junk. And yet, out front uh, of our house, there is nothing. Uh, we have not yet set anything on the driveway or on the curb. And I keep saying to Carrie, there has to be something that we don't need in this house. And then I go in and I look in our garage and in the basement. And I'm seeing what other people probably would consider junk. And yet, for some reason, I have this compulsive desire. I must keep this. I I don't know why, but I might need it eventually. You you know what I'm talking about, right? It's not just me. All of our our attics and our storage sheds um, and our, our, our basements speak to this story that for some reason we cling to things and we save them. But maybe deep down we are asking, why would I keep this? And that's the question God asks of humanity in the days of Noah. Why should I keep this? And we find in this covenant here, he gives a most surprising answer. Last week, we considered the massive promise that's at the heart of the covenant of grace. You remember the first covenant God enters into with man is a covenant of works. You have to work for my presence to to dwell with me in glory. Man fails. Um, he, He does not obey. And that could have been the end. But instead, God enters then into a new arrangement, a way, though, of receiving the same blessing. It's, the blessing is the same. Remember we talked about it's for here or to go. It's just the way it's packaged. The, the, the substance is still the same, though. The substance is dwelling with God forever in his uh, glorified presence. But now it won't come through works. It will come through grace. A- and that grace is seen in the Messiah that God would send. A savior, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem God's people from the curse of the sin due to to Adam and Eve's uh, wicked counter-covenant that they established with with, uh, the devil. The savior will come, we learn, to crush the head of the serpent, being bruised himself in the process. And so the promise is really nothing less than God himself would become man and die in our place to save people who don't deserve it, people like you and me. It's an amazing promise that sets up the whole story of the Bible. This is now how we read our Bibles, looking for how God will rescue and deliver us from sin and death, which is what he promised to do right there in Genesis 3.15, right at the very beginning of sin's entrance into the world. Could it get any better than that? Could it it get any better? Bigger than that. The covenant of grace is the biggest promise imaginable. It is as big as God himself, as infinite as eternity, deeper and wider than space. Dare we believe it? We, we all know the, the experience of, of somebody offering something really great, a promise. And, and the greater the promise, well, the greater the sense of letdown if it's not to be kept. The greater disappointment. So when people seem to offer something really great, we begin to doubt if it could possibly come to fruition. And so perhaps that is why, as the covenant of grace begins to unfold through the story of the Bible, the very next stage in its development is God 
underscoring that this very promise that seems too good to believe, that this promise can in no way be broken, it can never be forsaken, not even by the thing that would seem to threaten it most, and that is man's own wickedness, man's own sinfulness, the evil of humanity. If anything would make that promise not, to, not come to fruition, it would be sin. And yet here, God promises that nothing can keep that promise Nothing can keep this Messiah from coming. That's what we learn today as we begin to unpack the covenant that God makes with Noah. We start, though, with that problem of sin, the problem of sin. So you know the story during the days of Noah. Man was as wicked as wicked could be. You can turn to Genesis 6. That's where Noah's story begins. And we see where God looks down there in verse 5 upon uh, humanity upon his creation, and he sees more people following the seed of uh, the serpent than following the ways of the seed of the woman. So Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Here's a wonderful proof text. Um... Wonderful might be the wrong word. Here's a proof text for total depravity. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart are only evil continually, always. We're only at this point ten generations out from Adam. And mankind has reached its nadir, the lowest point, lower than low itself, only ten generations later. What will God do? Well, we're told that he regretted creating humanity. Now, we know that God does does not truly regret anything. He he never repents of anything. He never changes his mind. He doesn't grieve. Uh, But he reveals himself to us in that kind of language so that we can understand just just how our sin offends him. His heart is broken, as it were. And it's broken not over what he has created, but what humanity has done with his creation. And it's as though God would rather destroy what he made than see it used for for evil. And so here, Genesis portrays God nearing that point that we all fear uh, that he will reach with us. Have you ever had that that concern when when you consider your sinfulness? A low point in your life and you think, I bet God regrets that I'm his. I bet God wishes he had nothing to do with me. I mean, this is how Genesis portrays God's relationship with humanity at this point. When we doubt the good things of God, I think we know in our heart of hearts, it's not because we're afraid God will forget us or God will fail us. But we, we think it's because of our sin. It's so intense that he would actually be justified in forsaking us. It's not that he'll fail, but that he would have every right to get rid of us. And so we see the problem of sin, the seriousness of sin in this story. I mean, after all, God does send a flood to wipe out almost all of humanity. But that, that's just it, isn't it? It's, it's 
almost all of humanity. It's not all of humanity because he spares Noah. And to Noah, he makes a promise. So we've seen the problem. Now, secondly, the promise. That's what we read in beginning in verse 8 and and really starts there in verse 21, which we'll come back to again and again. And then it's spelled out more clearly in portions of chapter 9. Consider some aspects of the promise. First, who is it made with? Who does God make this promise with? Well, in 9 verse 9, God says, I establish my covenant with you. That's Noah. But it's not just with Noah, right? And your offspring. Okay, so Noah and his descendants. But it goes beyond that even. With every living creature that is with you. He goes on to list animals. He makes this covenant with, with animals. And then... Uh, verse 13, I've set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This covenant is a covenant God makes, not with humanity specifically, but with the created order more generally. It's, it's for, as he says at the end of verse 10, every beast of the earth. And chapter 8 concludes with God saying, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, it shall not cease. Okay, so God makes this promise with the earth, with created order. What is the promise, though, exactly? What is God promising to do? Well, in one sense, it would actually be better to say he's promising not to do something, right? He's promising not to wipe the world out with the flood again. He's promising to preserve life. What is the promise at the heart of the Noahic covenant? It's God's promise to preserve life. Chapter 9, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Uh, It's an elaboration of the statement made in in chapter 8 and verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man. And then he goes on, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature. So God is promising to preserve life. He promises to preserve life. Human life, and and he even does so by, we see that in chapter 9 when he tells Noah, be fruitful, multiply, start humanity all over again. And then he puts laws in place, like, for example, capital punishment um, to preserve life. Everything that we read in chapter 9 is a means of ensuring that human society can continue. He also promises to preserve animal life and the season. So so there will be crops and there will be a harvest so that man and animals can, can eat and can live. He's preserving life, but it's important to note that preserving life is a lot different than redeeming life. Or to put it another way, what God is speaking of here is strictly in terms of physical preservation, not spiritual salvation. When you think of Noahic, the Noahic covenant, when you think of Noah and the promise God makes there, think of physical preservation. Don't necessarily think of spiritual salvation. This is a covenant that's made in the context of an evil world. God acknowledges the evil of the world. That's why, again, there's this, there's this whole point about whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. There's just going to continue to be crime and, and punishment. It acknowledges the evil of the world, and it does not make a promise to wipe that evil out. What he does in this covenant with Noah, rather than promising to crush sin, is he promises that he won't extinguish sinners. David Van Drunen puts it like this, that the promise of preservation in the midst of evil is not the same as the promise of salvation from evil. 
Okay? Keep that in mind. So, we've seen uh, who the promise is made with, uh, what the promise is. Now, what are the conditions of this promise? What are the conditions of this covenant? In other words, uh, what does man have to do in order to ensure that God will preserve life and and not wipe out the world? Well, the answer is nothing. It's an entirely one-sided, unilateral promise. Although God announces it to Noah and says it will benefit Noah and his offspring and their offspring, what God is saying is, is really just an announcement of something he's already determined to do on his own. Look carefully with me at, at verse 21 again of chapter 8. Here's where God announces the, kind of, uh, the, the content of the promise. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Who is God saying that to? What does it say? The Lord said in his heart. This is just something God's saying to himself. He doesn't need to announce it at this point to any other party because it doesn't depend on any other party. This is something God is going to do of his own own volition. This is something that God will do that requires nothing else than God simply doing it. There are no terms beyond God keeping his word And so since God is not like man and cannot lie, by definition, this covenant is unbreakable. The promise will be kept. The sign of the covenant is further proof of this. God takes the well-known, the easily recognizable rainbow, this natural phenomena, which is part of the point, remember, that the covenant is made with the natural order. So he takes something that we see in nature, and yet he gives it a new purpose and that purpose i think i think we forget we at least i can often think that the rainbow is about when i see that rainbow i remember that god promised never again to wipe out the world with a flood but that's not the the purpose of the rainbow the purpose is that god would see it and he would remember that he'd never wipe out the world. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, God says. And I will remember, God says, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God is the one who must remember because... All of the obligations of this covenant, um, they, all the uh, obligations of the covenant lay squarely on God's shoulders. That's why, although it's good for us to see it and for us to remember, us remembering doesn't have anything to do with the covenant being kept. It's about God remembering because he is the one who keeps this covenant. And that rem- rainbow is a reminder to God that no amount of, of our sin can move his hand to wipe out the earth before the work of salvation is complete. No amount of sin can move God to do that. Even when when that same rainbow is co-opted by millions of people to endorse and celebrate sin and perversion. I mean, there's no small irony when a sign representing a covenant where God promises to preserve nature despite man's sin is used... In man's sin to actually attempt to upend nature. 
And yet, that's sort of the point, isn't it? That God's patience will persevere even against the perversity of man's rebellion so that his people can reach salvation. That's the point of this promise. That's the final thing I really want us to hone in. We've seen the problem, which is our sin. Now God makes a promise. And now we want to ask, what is really the point of this promise? Why does this covenant exist? It's unlike other covenants in Scripture for so many reasons that that we can often feel like we don't know what to do with it. So let's just make it crystal clear. Let's underscore and highlight it. Why does God enter into a covenant with Noah after rescuing him from the flood? Why does he promise that he'll preserve human life, animal life, human society, the, the cycles of nature? What is the point? And the reason that this is such an important question is because readers of the Bible will notice, as we've already mentioned, there is nothing redemptive, explicitly redemptive, in this covenant. There's nothing salvific about this covenant. He does not promise salvation. He does not reiterate the promise of Genesis 3.15. So some people have said, because there's nothing redemptive, this really doesn't belong, doesn't belong in the unfolding story of the covenant of grace. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, people would say. It doesn't have anything to do with Christ. This is, whatever it is, it's separate from the covenant of grace. But that's to miss the point. And here it is. Here is the point. The point is that this promise ensures Christ will come. This promise ensures that Christ will come. Because what would happen if God did wipe out all of humanity? Well, the promise of Genesis 3.15, which is all about salvation and redemption, could never be fulfilled. There, there would no longer be a seed of the woman. There would no longer be a line of the woman. This promise ensures that God will not bring judgment before he brings the Messiah. And that's good news for us. God is guaranteeing his people here that the, the big, massive promise of Genesis 3.15, that, that we dare not believe, no, no, it can't be thwarted, even by the thing that seems to threaten it most, which is our sin. God makes this promise in the face of humanity's deepest, darkest moment. When mankind is as wicked as wicked could get, God could wipe us all out. But no, he preserves Noah, Noah who we can trace back through the line of Seth, the seed of the woman, which is, which is a way of us seeing that God is going to preserve the Genesis 3.15 covenant of grace. A savior will come. And nothing can stop that, even our own wickedness. Look with me again at, at verse 21 of chapter 8. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why not? God says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Do you follow the logic there? If you say yes, then I don't believe you because it actually seems illogical. God says, I'm never going to curse uh, the ground because of man. Why? Because man is so awful. No, that doesn't make sense. What would make sense it would be for God to say, I will continue to curse the ground because of man, since man's heart is evil. So what are we to make of this? O. Palmer Robertson, in his book on covenant theology, is helpful. He writes this, God understands, listen to this, this is wonderful, that the sin problem never will be cured by judgment and curse. If appropriate relief from sin's corruption is to appear, the earth must be preserved free of devastating judgments such as the flood 
for a time. And indeed, for such a time until the Messiah can come. Because that's how the sin problem is cured. Not by curse, but by Christ. What's the, what do we do with the wickedness of man's heart? It's not that man is crushed. No, it's that man gets a new heart. And that's what Jesus came to do. The cure to sin isn't judgment, but it's redemption. It's renovation. Christ comes to give that to us. And that's what's promised back in Genesis 3.15. And here now, in Genesis 8 and 9, we're confirmed that nothing can stop God from making good on that promise. As I've said, even our own sin. So, while the Noahic covenant is not a covenant of great saving grace per se, it sets the stage for salvation to take place. It's a promise of preservation that sort of protects uh, uh, the promise of, of salvation. Sets guardrails around the Genesis 3.15 promise. The fact that a baby is born in Bethlehem is proof that this covenant was kept. The fact that the, the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ, finally did arrive is because God preserved his promise by not bringing judgment until that day. The fact that the, fact that the calendar of human history makes it to the first Christmas is because God kept his word when he said, I will never again strike down every living creature as I have done. That's the point of this promise. It brings us to Jesus. But there's something else I want to say here in closing, which is so important for you to understand. We've said that the reason that Jesus came here is because this covenant was kept. But I want you to know the reason you are here right now today, this moment, is because this covenant is being kept still. Why hasn't God wiped us out because of our sin? Why are any of us here? Why haven't we been consumed by the wrath of God on account of our many sins? The reason is so that we would look to Jesus and be saved. That's the point. We, we look at our, our attics and basements and our storage sheds, and there's so many things we keep that if we were really pressed to give an answer, we wouldn't be able to say why we keep them. I'm not sure why I keep this. I wonder why I have that. I wonder why I hold on to this. We don't ever ever need to wonder why God has kept us and why he doesn't toss us out, we know, and the answer is out of his abundant mercy, out of his, out of his, his, his long-suffering and his patience, giving all of us, all of you here, hearing my voice, giving you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved from coming judgment. The New Testament tells us just as much. If you don't follow me, with, uh, follow me to these passages, at least write them down, read them later. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why you're still here. 2 Corinthians 6.2 for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is that favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 2. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. 
Do you have that knowledge of truth today? Do you, do you get the point of this promise we've read in Genesis 8 and 9 made to Noah? For, for you to get it, for it to click, means that you've given your life over to the God of mercy and grace, never having to experience the God of judgment. Have you turned to the Lord who right now is withholding judgment and offering salvation? That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what you're here for. To glorify God as you find him on this day of salvation. And so as we heard from Isaiah earlier, I implore you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Our Father, we... I give you thanks for your word, and today as your word has shown us your patience and your mercy, but also the reality of judgment, we give you thanks that you are so kind as to not let judgment overwhelm salvation, but that you have preserved the promise that the Messiah would come, and even now, right now, you've preserved our lives so that we could hear about the Messiah and put our faith in him. I, I pray that each and every one of us here today would do that. Thank you that your word reveals you to be a God who does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come and to find you and, and to experience repentance that leads to life. Send us your Holy Spirit. Give us the grace to find you, to bow before you, and to receive your mercy in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.